Hello and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to be continuing on with the subject of the Green New Deal. You heard me speaking about that just the other day, and it is a subject that very much merits much attention because really, uh, to many of us, it is the most exciting thing for Congress to be debating and discussing and, and advancing than anything in a long time. <clears throat> so to help unpack this immensely important subject, not just for us here in the United States of America, but actually for the entire world, because this is a global matter. It's systemic in nature. Anyone who listens to this show with any regularity knows that we have spoken with environmental scientists one after the other to discuss what dangers lie before us if this matter goes unresolved. And even if we were to resolve it all today by ending fossil fuels, by reducing methane, by doing all of the activities that we would need to do, much of it outlined in a number of different books that we've discussed here on A Better World, still in all, we will have already passed certain critical tipping points, and the world, the earth, will never be the same as it once was. But there is still, thankfully, and let's all take heart, much that we can still do, I truly believe, and I believe there is evidence to back that if we actually move forward in a very, very ambitious direction. So to hear about this Green New Deal and to understand more and to unpack it is my guest today, and that is one of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez's chief advisors on the Green New Deal, Robert Hockett. Robert is a professor of law at Cornell Law School, and he has been since 2004. His principal teaching, research, and writing interests are in the fields of organizational, financial, and monetary law and economics in both their positive and normative, as well as by the national and transactional dimensions. His guiding concern in these fields is with the legal and institutional prerequisites to a just, prosperous, and sustainable economic order. So, Bob will be speaking with us about the Green New Deal and help us understand it because uh, it needs to be understood so we can then petition our representatives and make sure something meaningful transpires. Bob has been on national media recently. I've seen some of it, and um, it's been a little discouraging, although he's very exciting, because most of national media, commercial, mainstream, uh, television, and radio are looking for sound bites, not for a more meaningful and in-depth review of the important subject at hand. So we're very glad, Robert Huckett, to have you on A Better World Radio. Welcome. Good to have you. Hey, Mitch. It's so good to be with you. Thanks so much. Absolutely, absolutely. It must be a bit frustrating for you, as I was saying, to be on the standard media where uh, they're kind of trying to pick at you and pick at um, a 
OOC and not really deal with the substantive matters at hand, yet there are so many substantive matters at hand. It's definitely very, very frustrating uh, in some ways, although it's not really surprising, right? So as we know, right-wing reactionary media tends to sort of fixate on things that are actually not things, you know, uh, in order, yeah. to, it seems uh, essentially, right, to deflect attention from what matters, right? So basically what yeah. they seem to be talking about now or sort of all on about now is various false documents that are out there. Some of them were early drafts that were apparently prematurely shared. Others apparently were actually uh, doctored or forged or were sort of joke documents. It's not clear what the provenance of all of them is. But what they all have in common and what matters most for our purposes and ought to matter most for every single American's purposes is that none of them are the Green New Deal resolution. That's the thing that 70 House members voted on. That's, I'm not, I shouldn't say voted, I'm sorry, have co-sponsored, have signed on to. That's the thing yeah. that 10 to 12 uh, senators appear to be um, uh, behind or endorsing. And that's the thing that pretty much every, virtually every Democratic, an, uh, announced Democratic uh, candidate for president so far uh, has also sort of signed on to or endorsed, right? So, so that's the thing we're really talking about, or meant to be talking about. That's what the, that's all that we have at the moment, in the way of the Green New Deal, right? Not a bunch of uh, again early drafts or doctored documents or joke documents or hoax documents or whatever it is that uh, all of these people are talking about, right? And if you if you yeah. take a quick like perusal of Twitter or anything, you'll just see like literally thousands of people are saying that the Green New Deal resolution, the, the actual thing that all of these Congress members have co-sponsored, has in it things like giving people money when they're unwilling to work, um, you know, ending air travel altogether, banning cows. I mean, there's all sorts of just unbelievable, <laughs> yes, complete and utter rubbish nonsense. Yeah, and these people yeah. actually think now that that's what the Green New Deal is. And, you know, it, it looks as though that's because that's essentially what those who oppose the Green New Deal idea or any kind of public action, I suppose, are trying to get people uh, to think, right, to get them to believe. Well, in short, what you're saying, Bob, is that all of those versions of the Green New Deal are really red herrings, <laughs> nothing we yes. need to pursue. <laughs> So, yeah, exactly. well, thank it's you for making that distinction. Yeah. I'm sorry? You bet. You bet, Mitch. Sure. Yeah, it's good to make that distinction so people can mm -hmm. separate the wheat from the chaff here and uh, use their mm -hmm. discernment to come to the proper document, which, by the way, I hope I've been marking up here on my own computer, which looks like mm -hmm. it's all of 14 pages. And what I found uh -huh. is a PDF stating final resolution. Would that be the correct one? The um, what does I'm sorry, what does it say across the top? At the very top, it says 116 Congress first session, H. Res. In the House of Representatives, resolution yeah, recognizing yeah. the duty of the federal government to create a Green New Deal. Yeah, Whereas that's the one. The that's October the 2000. Yeah. Is that it? Yep, that's the one. That's the resolution. Okay, exactly. There's no reference so, to air travel. There's no reference to giving <laughs> right. money to everybody. There are a couple of general uh, points which I would like to ask you about, of course, but I would like oh, sure, to first sure. to hear you. Were you, number one, involved in the drafting of this resolution? 
Yeah, there's a, a, many of, there's a team of quite a few of us, and we've all been involved in conceiving uh, the thing in the first place and then drafting mm-hmm. uh, the resolution itself, uh, and then also drafting various surrounding uh, explainers that are sort of official out on the, on the web, right? So uh, mm-hmm. I work largely through the uh, new consensus think tank, and if people actually go to the website of new consensus, they'll find a sort of canonical 14-page uh, sort of, uh, how should I put it, a kind of an explication of or an explanation in sort of plain language rather than mm-hmm. in whereas language, right, rather than in statutory oh, language okay. of what the, you right. see of what the Green New Deal is meant to do. Uh, if you, I don't know if you happen to be at a, at a desktop or something while you're at it here, but any, any yes, listener uh, who's at a – oh, great. So if you were just to Google, you know, new consensus and just go to their site, you'll find there's a – you know, one of the – links you can click on is just Green New Deal. And then you'll find a couple of documents. One is a two-pager and one is a 14-pager. Um, and those provide, again, kind of nice summary renditions of sort of what the animating vision is, um, what the mm-hmm. basic principles and desiderata are, sort of what the vision is, um, basically. And uh, those are, you can kind of think of those in relation to the resolution a bit in the way that you can think of the Federalist Papers uh, in relation to the Constitution. To the Constitution, uh, so they, I see. Yeah, okay. see, so they are not themselves yep. legal documents, but they are, you know, those of us who have drafted those things have also been in, in, in the middle of the deliberations and in the drafting process of the actual resolution. And presumably yes. will be, you know, in the middle of further drafting as, as more actual legislation is passed in future, you know, sort of in okay. unfolding the, uh, the Green New Deal. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, that's a good does that, reference. Does that, does that make sense? I appreciate that. Yes, it does. Absolutely. Good, good. Of course it does. Um, what I would Great. like, would you, I want to give you the chance, Bob, to really sort of unpack this, as I said to our audience, uh, in a way that is uh, uninterrupted, except occasionally by me because I can't help it. But other sure. than that, uh, I would really like to hear you perhaps um, kind of articulate the the fundamentals here uh, that you feel are uh, the most important points in the document and the resolution for mm-hmm. Americans and others to know about. Great, great. Thanks so much. And Mitch, from for that, the we can dialogue that. about various points. And of course, I have some questions as well. So, but please, sure, the form sure, is yours. Great. I'd love for you to uh, lay out <laughs> what you feel we should know. <laughs> yeah, well, great, great, great. So, um, in, a, in a way, the Green New Deal could be thought of as the sort of a response to, um, I guess, what you could think of as a kind of a providential confluence, right? A confluence of two uh, developments uh, that both kind of come together. Uh, onto sort of one conclusion in a sense, or both end up sort of feeding into a single conclusion. So let me first say what those two things are and then what the conclusion is. So um, to begin with, I think most of us, if not indeed all of us who have been part of this process, agree that the country has never really fully recovered from the 2008 crash, nor has it recovered from the circumstances that ultimately culminated in the 2008 crash, right? So, you know, there there are all these numbers that people are throwing around that, oh, the unemployment rate is low, and oh gosh, you know, new job uh, starts, or, I mean, so new, uh, new uh, job takings are, are up and, and the like, but 
what all of that stuff sort of leaves out, what all of the statistics leave out are a number of things, but one is that the overwhelmingly greater part of the so-called new jobs that are being, that are being uh, uh, opening up and that people are then uh, finding and taking are very, very low-paying jobs, right? They're not paying what you would call a living wage. They're not jobs that people can live on. To borrow an old quip of Bob Dole's from many years back, yeah, there are all these jobs, all right. I just was talking to a guy the other day who's got three of them. And that's the the nature of these new jobs, right? I mean, these are not, yeah. you know, these are not living wage, middle class jobs that people can grow families on the basis of or buy homes with or what have you. Right? The so other what thing called, what are about, called flipping burgers, flipping burger jobs. Yeah, burger. You know, they're usually yeah, in burger, the fast food industry, jobs. in fact. Sector, yeah. Indeed, many, you know, a good, a good many of them are. Others of them are at places like Walmart, right, where you're just a check, a check, out, a checkout cashier, yeah, uh, and being underpaid, and again, not being paid a living wage, and of course, perhaps, you know, probably not receiving anything in the way of health insurance benefits or anything of that sort. So, you know, that's the first point, and the second point in that connection is that the unemployment rate actually is not a good number to use to track the, you know, track the problem that we're faced with. Because, of course, those who have given up looking for jobs after years of discouragement and not, you know, basically years of seeking jobs and not finding them are not captured in that number. The number that's actually more helpful or more revealing of something that matters and the number that real economists tend to look at uh, is what we call the labor force participation rate, right? So, and the labor mm -hmm. force participation rate is still uh, quite low by historical standards. So if you combine that fact that the participation rate is low with the fact that even among those who are participating in the labor force, um, that those folk are being paid non-living wages, then you sort of see at once that you know the, the, the economy hasn't really recovered. We haven't really restored anything, any semblance of real health to the economy. And indeed, you know, the, the reason for the crash and the crisis itself was because the economy was quite unhealthy in the lead up to that as well, right? The reason that the Fed under Greenspan encouraged uh, heavy mortgage borrowing from people was that, and, and low interest rates and maintained low interest rates for as long as he did was precisely in order artificially to inflate home prices because when housing prices are inflating, everybody enjoys a sense of wealth. They call it the wealth effect. And the, so they spend more and that helps to keep the economy growing. But of course, they're yes. racking up more and more and more debt to do it. And that's not in the long run sustainable for individual private citizens, of course, to rack up more and more and more debt. It's the so feeling that comes with the idea, Bob, if I may add, of uh, mm -hmm. a rising tide lifts all boats. But the tide also ebbs and flows. It goes back and forth. So it, in other yeah, words, well, to that. translate, it has the appearance of rising because real estate rights have risen, you know, home values have risen. Mm -hmm. But in right. fact, the debt to accommodate that is also rising. And it's a false sense of security is what I hear you saying. Yeah, I mean that is it, it was it was an artificially inflated housing price bubble that people temporarily benefit by because of course they could liquidate some of that growth in home equity, right? You've heard this expression mm -hmm. that people were turning their homes into ATM machines in the early 2000s. Yeah. 
that yeah. essentially what they were doing was you know liquidating their their rising home equity and that means that they have additional cash flow for a while but only for as long as those home equity values are rising and they were rising owing to an artificial stimulus in the form of very low interest rates that Alan Greenspan was maintaining so it was bound to be only a temporary fix at best I would have been all in favor of that if we had been sort of busy working to fix the underlying structure of the economy and the underlying structural problems of the economy during the fix, you know, because then we could say, all right, this is a tide over measure and we're going to, you know, we're going to sort of benefit by the tide over while working on the sort of underside of that tide over, uh, namely the, the fundament of the economy, right, the actual economic structure, which means, you know, real wages, real salaries, um, you know, uh, real labor force uh, participation rate rather than uh, unemployment rate. Uh, but we didn't do any of that stuff, right? I mean, basically, we relied on cheap housing credit uh, and, of course, uh, what we call sometimes military Keynesianism, right, war spending uh, during the Bush mm-hmm. Wars. But but none of that was sort of long-lasting type of, of, of type growth, right? So uh, what happened it's in 2008 – It's not real economic is, growth. It's, it's not even superficial close. at best. And when you talk about now, I, you know, let me remind the audience here, you also do some work at or consulting with the Federal Reserve Bank. So your understanding of economics is beyond the average barrier. You are really essentially, along with being a professor of law, an economist. That's the level on which you understand economic activity. So yeah, my, what my, you're saying both my pre- has – yes. Yeah, both, both my pre and my post uh, legal background is in economics and finance, right? So I went yeah. into law school uh, with an economics background. Um, in law school, I did a lot of work in finance. And then when I did my doctoral work after law school, that was very finance focused. And uh, most yeah. of my practical work out there in the world and most of my teaching is finance and economic, macroeconomic in particular. So that's the kind of thing I do. And of course, that's what the Fed is concerned with. And that's what the New York Fed especially is concerned with. That's also sure. what the International Monetary Fund is concerned with. And that was, of course, my mm-hmm. first job out of law school. So, so yeah, this yeah. is my sort of bailiwick. Uh, and indeed, before exactly. we got going on the Green New Deal, I mean, and, and indeed, even in parallel with the work on the Green New Deal, most of my work is in the realm of uh, finance and finance policy and finance regulatory policy, as well as monetary policy and macroeconomic policy. So would you say that the crushing blow uh I mean I'm asking your opinion and we're we're digressing a moment but we're really going to be coming back in full force to the subject of the green deal and the contents of the resolution itself uh that the bottom fell out of the US economy um not quickly but over some time say during the 70s when manufacturing jobs began to disappear, they went to Mexico, they went to Asia, China, Hong Kong, Southeast Asia, etc. And the basic strengths of the United States began to essentially diminish. That's right. I mean, basically, uh, you know, I, I tend, I typically sort of locate this. I, I locate the, the beginning of the problem at approximately the same point that I take you to locate it, which is in the 1970s. And it's partly a matter of deindustrialization of the sort that you uh, referenced, which is itself in turn 
partly a, a result of so-called globalization, right? Trade liberalization, mm-hmm. uh, pursuant yes. to which we sort of exported more and more of our well-paying jobs abroad. The other piece of that story, I think a very important piece, is the assault on the labor movement and on labor unions yes. and organized labor. Right? It's because the, the key contribution that organized labor made and that the law that sort of protected labor organization made was precisely that it increased the bargaining power of labor so that they could ensure, they could use their bargaining power to ensure that a, a particular, a specific share of growth in national wealth on an annual basis always went to laboring folk. So we had a kind of a social contract, you might say, a kind of an implicit social contract from yeah. the 1930s and 40s on well into the 1970s, which hard is that the won, economy no would grow. Hard won back then. Hard know, fought. Labor hard union won. organizers being jailed and called communists and socialists and all sorts of things, the whole bit. right? The whole bit. And worse. Hard yeah. fought hard one. And so we we ended up having a a kind of social contract for a while. And the contract was basically to the effect that, look, the national economy is going to grow a certain amount every year. That's basically adding to wealth. And what we're going to do is we're going to basically give the grand, you know, the the two great sectors of our economy a share, right? A, 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 A steady share in that growth. One of those sectors is the capital sector, right? Those who own stuff, those who own businesses, those who hold financial assets, right? They would get a portion of the annual growth every year. And then labor, those who earn most of their income from wages, through wages or salaries, would get a a fixed or, again, a, a stable share as well. And so as the economy grew, everybody's wealth grew, literally everybody's, right? And in that sense, the rising tide really did lift all the boats, right? Now, it's true that capital benefited disproportionately, but labor nevertheless, right, had a steady share. What happened in the 70s, and that was all made possible by the bargaining power that labor had, which in turn was made possible by the favorable labor legislation of the New Deal era in the 1930s. So what happened in the 70s mm-hmm. is all of that labor protective legislation came under assault. And increasingly, right, companies fought against labor unions, basically tried to squeeze more and more out of the share of labor to the point where we got to where by about 1977 labor ceased to take any of the share in economic growth right that basically mm-hmm. almost all of it 90 some odd percent of it went to the owners of capital right now that has two effects right first of all inequality becomes worse and worse right dramatically worse in short sure. time um, right inequality secondly, through inequity Precisely, yeah. And then secondly, what happens is as basically more and more of the wealth and income skew to the top, the economy faces a long-term systemic problem. And that is the problem of finding sufficient inducement to engage in productive activity at all. And the intuition here is pretty easy to communicate. If you and I, Mitch, are not in the top, say, 1% or the top 10% or whatever sort of upper level sort of quintile or decile or nth aisle you want to pick, if you and I are not at the top of the distribution and basically our wealth or our income is diminishing steadily as a proportion of the total, you and I are are not able to buy the stuff that our firms are producing, right? Now, at some point, right, the people who are running the firms, including the people and the people who own them, 
sort of realize, well, my gosh, we're not going to be able to sell any of this stuff. So I guess we better not produce any more of it. And then they think, yes. well, I guess that means we better not employ people because why should we pay these people even their even the low salaries or low wages that we pay them? Why should we yes. keep paying them even these low wages if you know we're not going to be able to sell any of the stuff that we're it's making? It's a downward by spiral. A one thinks Bingo. oneself Bingo. into a downward spiral because the buying power of the the middle class, the labor class, is not there. It's been diminishing it simultaneously. That's exactly right. So it's a sort of self-worsening spiral. Now, this yes. is precisely what we tried to sort of paper over temporarily through very, very loose finance regulatory policy, credit policy, and monetary policy more generally. This was essentially mm -hmm. what Greenspan was doing, right? So yes. during, you know, we realized that the, the problem really began to manifest itself in a big way within about a decade, right? So the problem begins in the late 70s. By the mid to late 80s, we realize, oh my God, there is a long-term drain on purchasing power, on consumer purchasing power from our economy. We have to come up with ways to continuing purchasing activity so as to keep the economy growing and keep people employed. Otherwise, we're just going to have another Great Depression, right? So this is what we did. We began to deregulate finance in a big way in the 1980s. That, of course, brought the famous, the notorious savings and loan crisis. Uh, of right. the mid late 1980s, um, then we began to under Reaganomics, um, right? Under precisely, yeah, yep. And then and we changed the tax code, right? So the tax code ceased to be as redistributed as uh, redistributive as it had been, which you know mm -hmm. that's another thing to keep in mind here. The tax policy used to function as a kind of an offset as well, because you know basically the higher up the income ladder or the wealth ladder you were situated the greater the portion of your income was taxed, right? And then yeah, that the could be used, share. right? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we basically began to uh, change the tax code, surrender them much less redistributive, much less progressive around the same time. And that left only one way then of dealing with the gathering and worsening uh, inequality problem, and that was again to rely on these sort of these sort of artificial stimuli in the form of financial bubbles or asset price bubbles. So again, it starts mm -hmm. with financial markets, with, in the, with the, the savings and loans institutions, the sort of uh, fad investment vehicle du jour at that time for them were the so-called junk bonds. Um, once yes. that whole thing sort of fell apart in the, in the so-called savings and loan crisis. We moved on to the next thing, which was the glorification the tech bubble. of debt through Michael Milken. Right, exactly, exactly. Uh, and you know, people came There's to be viewed as wizards. a great play, by wizards. the way. I don't know if you saw that, Bob, about about that uh, about Milken. I've not seen that. Um, no. It no, was I've not right seen in that. Uh, Lincoln Center. A, a fantastic. It really kind of elucidated yeah. a lot of it. Anyway, please go on. That's really great. Yeah, so I mean, uh, the next, of course, bubble that we worked to inflate was the tech bubble. Uh, and that, you know, that helped to some extent to give people this kind of feeling that, oh, there's growth going on. And, um, you know, uh, the stocks that some people had purchased in, ta in tech companies uh, were growing in value as well, uh, or at least apparently growing in value because their prices were rising. Again, it was all fueled by, by, by debt. Uh, but then, of course, that one uh, crashed or collapsed in March of 2000. 
Uh, and then the next big thing after that was, of course, uh, mortgage-related debt. Um, yes. And so the next junk bonds, so to speak, were the subprime mortgage loans and the subprime mortgage-backed securities. Yes. So, you know, by the backed time by we the got government, to, to – Backed by the government. Yeah, by the time we then and, – and again, this was a, a, the, something I often will tell audiences when I'm speaking to a large group of people is that you know, even if you imagine uh, uh, Alan Greenspan as a saint – I know that's a bit of a, a, bit of a stretch, but <laughs> imagine that Alan Greenspan is, kind of, is basically Mother Teresa. Right? He's concerned about America. He's concerned about the economy, and he's concerned about the little gal and the little guy. He mm-hmm. might very well – have adopted the very policies that Alan Greenspan did adopt. And the reason for that is that, you know, if you're the Fed chairman, you only have really one policy lever at your disposal, and that's monetary and credit policy. Exactly. So, you know, and the only way to keep the economy growing was by artificially stimulating it with cheap credit. And if in particular, if you could sort of channel that cheap credit toward the housing markets and toward the asset markets that were sort of correlated with or related to the housing markets, then you got tremendous bang from your, for your buck for a while at least. And that's exactly what we had. The Clinton years that people sometimes talk about as having been kind of golden years or sort of a wonderful time. Well, mm-hmm. they felt that way, sure, but those were entirely debt fueled. Those were, and, and I'm talking about private debt, not public debt. Those were private debt fueled. So they were bound, those years were bound to come to grief ultimately. And they began to show signs of slowing down around 2000, 2001. But then we found another way to sort of artificially stimulate, and that was with massive military spending by, in the Bush, during the Bush wars. And again, more financial innovation, as we euphemistically call it, in the realm of housing and, and home finance. So mm-hmm. all of that, we basically stretched it to the maximum, uh, to the sort of you know maximum extent of, of its possible stretching uh, by about the summer of 2006. And it was in 2006, that summer, that uh, housing prices finally leveled off. They stopped rising. And then they began to dip starting in late August, early September of 2006. And from that point on, it was inevitable that there was going to be a tremendous crash, and it was going to come either in early 2000, late 07, or early 08, or it was going to come in late 08, just entirely depending on how how much sort of salvaging uh, the Fed and the Treasury Department could do. So they were able to kind of stave it off until about August of 2008, and then it all came a cropper. Everything began to crash. And we've basically been living with the aftermath of that ever since, right? And in a way, yeah. this was basically just the coming home to roost of the chickens that were sort of let loose in those decades after the 70s when we had to come up with artificial means of stimulating growth in order to deal with the fact that those below the top of the distribution were no longer earning enough to buy stuff and buy enough stuff in order to keep factories humming and keep people employed. Yes, it's just, it's just that simple. Su- the cycle. Yeah, yeah. So bringing this back to the Green New Deal, in 2008, yes. uh, when the crash happened, there were you know I, there was a, a, a very large number. Well, I shouldn't say a large, but a, a, a reasonably sizable number of us, I guess you could say, um, on the one hand, addressed what we had to do financially to fix what had gone wrong, right? To sort of make sure that there wasn't a recurrence in the financial system. But then a very Mm -hmm. tiny, tiny minority of us uh, said that that's not going to be enough. What we really have to do 
is address the underlying fundamental structure of the real economy, quite apart from the financial economy, to correct all of the imbalances and all of the dysfunctions that had taken over the economy since, you know, or starting back in the mid-1970s, as you and I were talking about Mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. And, And we never did it. We simply did not do it. Obama could have done it. I mean, he had a mandate. He won by a sizable margin, and he had majorities yeah. in, in Congress. And we could have done something really big um, from 2009 until 2011. But he decided to put all of his chips on health insurance reform, and he decided to kind of open the negotiations on health insurance by surrendering what should have been the most you know hardly hardly hard held or or quick or fast held uh principle of them all which would have been single payer so they dropped yeah. single payer right from the start they started with the public option idea and then they dropped that almost immediately so you got this weird monstrosity of obamacare which was certainly better than nothing but you know <laughs> not that good and furthermore all of the political Basically, capital that the insurance was spent. the the health insurance industry wrote for him and were the Bingo. great winners yeah. of, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm glad to hear Which you say course, this point of view about it because I very much feel aligned with that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways it was better Despite than the propaganda that we got. You know, whatever it was like, 20 million more people insured. But, but the problem was that at what cost? First of all, yeah, I mean, and that's the problem, yeah. right? All the, also all of the capital was spent on that, so none of it was there was no capital, so to speak, no political capital left to do that fundamental restructuring of the economy that was necessary, and and then secondly, what of course, would you it have fed done, into. Since we've gone down this, well, hold on, one, since we've one, gone down one this second, path, and it fed yeah. in, Well, it fed into all of those. It fed into all of those sort of conspiracy theories um, about how well. It's it, everything that this administration does is corrupt because it looked like a bargain with the insurance industry. Yeah. So, you know, it left us yes. in, in that way. It left us politically much worse off than we had been. What would you have done, Bob, if you were advising Obama during that time period when he first got in? Uh, he inherited yeah. the worst possible mess from Bush. It's so interesting to hear how people forget about how bad it was back then, but you and I and many of our friends and colleagues remember very well how horrible that was, the bailout, everything. What would you have advised him to do since we've gone down this economic uh, um, pathway, which is all fine with me because it all is related to the Green New Deal, as I know you'll be circling back to? Uh, What would you have recommended? Yeah, so what I'm gonna, what I would have recommended, or what I'm about to tell you that I would have recommended, uh, is actually nicely relevant to the Green Deal, Green New Deal, because in a sense, what we're talking about in the Green New Deal is to do precisely those things ten years later. So, um, so for, uh, at least in some, there's some, there's significant overlap, let's say. So I would mm-hmm. have told, I would have counseled Obama first to partly nationalize the banks. All right. Now, Larry Summers, nobody's hero. Uh, is said actually to have argued for a complete nationalization of the banks. I'm, I, you know, I'm not sure that I fully believe that. Maybe it's true, maybe not. But at the very least, the government should have taken a permanent stake in those large banking institutions to have a significant voice from the inside on the boards of directors. Oh, to, yeah. Right to change right the operative. Uh, principles on which they act to sort of change their objective functions, to use that sort of trendy term that some economists are using mm-hmm. these days. That would have been mm-hmm. one thing, right? 
Next, yeah. next thing, totally revitalize labor law, totally revitalize the labor movement and labor unions, restore all of their strengths, all of their bargaining power. All right. That's number two. Mm-hmm. Number three, restore profound progressivity to the tax code, right? Make the tax code progressive again in the way that it had been up until the Reagan period. And then finally, okay. number four, do for real something that, well, actually four is number four, and then there's going to be a fifth. Four, do for real something that Trump has claimed, he, you know, always claimed he was going to do, but hasn't done really. And that is rebalance our trade relations with our trading partners, but not in a kind of stupid, you know, kind of dopey, short-term sort of way, but in a much more long-term fundamental way so that we don't basically continue to export our manufacturing sector abroad. And then finally, number five, truly rebuild the nation's infrastructure, which was already a shambles, even at the time of the crash in 2008. Totally rebuild it, completely revitalize it, spend at least $3 trillion, as the American Society of Civil Engineers has recommended be done, in that, you know, at least in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Those five things together, those five things together would have reversed, I think, all of the trends that you and I were just talking about that really kind of got underway in the 70s to -hmm. sort of restore a kind of balanced economy of the kind that we had up until the 70s, right? Now, that, in a way, takes us to the Green New Deal, right? It takes us to the Green New Deal because at least three of those five things that I said I would have recommended that Obama do – are actually in the Green New Deal. So start with the last one, number five that I mentioned, infrastructure. We are actually talking about completely rebuilding the nation's uh, infrastructure, right? A complete revamping, a complete revitalization of all of the nation's vital infrastructure, transport infrastructure, power infrastructure, water infrastructure, you name it, do all of it, right? That's exactly what should have been done uh, during the time of the, um, during Obama's kind of grace period. And we want to do it now. Um, But we're going to do it in a way that is eco-friendly because there's sort of two reasons for that, right? One, the obvious reasons that we have to do this to sort of save the planet, right? But two is that all of the state-of-the-art technologies are green anyway, right? In other words, if you really want a modern economy, you have to have a green economy, right? We don't just burn crap anymore. We're not like Neanderthals (laughs) living in caves where the only power source, you know, that everything we need to do, we just do it by burning stuff. I mean, that's just so bloody primitive when you think about it, right? I mean, we're still just burning stuff. You know, sure, it's like refined petroleum products or whatever, or refined alcohols or or things of that kind. But I mean, if you think about it, when you get right down to it, cave-dwelling humans, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, just burned crap, right? They burned wood. That's right. And we're just we're still right. burning stuff. They burned right? this stuff. Is actually kind they of, burned stuff yeah, and they extracted it's like bloody stuff. embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it's just totally embarrassing. Like why are we you still doing like this? Me. I right? say this kind of thing all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. Surely, what is right? the difference like between we, us and the caveman? You know, very yeah, little has no, actually changed. Right? Yeah, like a quarter of a million years ago, if you'd walk by a cave, you would have seen smoke coming out of it. And here we are, a quarter yes. million years later, you walk by an automobile and you see smoke coming out of an exhaust pipe, in effect, right? That's right. Or you go by a That's factory right. and you see smoke coming out of stuff. I mean, but we don't have to do that. I mean, it's just not necessary no. anymore. And so, so if you really want a modern state-of-the-art economy 
or a modern state-of-the-art set of infrastructures, those are going to be green anyway. Even if we didn't have to save the planet, you would want to do that because it's That's much right. more efficient. It just works better. But in addition, we have to do it to save the planet. So that's the first thing, right? That basically the, the fifth thing that I would have told Obama to do is one of the first things that we're doing through the Green New Deal, right? Now, get back, turn to labor policy and you know wages and, and what people are paid, right? Well, another plank, as you know, of the Green New Deal is a for, some form of federal jobs guarantee program pursuant to which anybody who is willing and ready to work is able to work. It will never be the case that some, an American wants to work but simply can't find any place to work and basically has to depend on the good graces of some private person who you know, might or might not be willing to hire him if he or she wants to work. Mm-hmm. We're never going like we, to allow to me. It. Yeah, that's a very New Dealish thing. And indeed, as you yeah. know, at the time of his death, Franklin Roosevelt uh, was planning to push what he was going to call a second Bill of Rights. And one of the uh, planks of that Bill of Rights, one of the rights in question was going to be a right to work, a right to gainful employment. And that's very straight. I can't believe, I think in the future, we're going to look back on the on the fact that there were times when you know, people might want to work and have to make a living and not be able to. We're going to look at it and be scandalized by it rather in the way that we're scandalized now when we learn that, well, it wasn't even 100 years ago when, that women were not allowed to vote, right? And it wasn't yeah, even exactly. more than 150 or 60 years ago that some of our our current citizenry would have been enslaved, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, we look back on that with sort of embarrassment and with great consternation and, and self-loathing almost, right? Yeah. And we're going to look back, I think, similarly to the time when people had to, you know, rely on somebody else to hire them, some pri- you know, again, somebody who had the right not to hire them if they didn't want to, in order even to work. Um, it's just ridiculous. It shouldn't be the case. So federal job guarantee, first of all, will make sure that people have work when they want work. But secondly, and at least as importantly in my view, even though this attribute of the job guarantee doesn't get as much attention, is that the job guarantee can then become a very flexible form of minimum wage uh, guaranteeing. Because if you think mm-hmm. about it, right, whatever, whatever wage the federal government pays pursuant to the job guarantee becomes the minimum wage de facto. It becomes the new benchmark, right? The new norm. Everybody – it becomes the new norm. Private employer, and you want people to work for you, you're going to have to pay them at least as much as the federal government pays pursuant yeah. to the job guarantee. If you pay less, they'll just defect and go over to the federal employment. So it's a very flexible way of maintaining just basic, decent living wage standards. And you can even analogize it. In fact, I've got a paper out that's going to be uh, coming out soon in the Economic Policy Journal Challenge. It's called Open Labor Market Operations. And the title is a, is a self-conscious play on the notion of open market operations, which is what the Fed engages in every day to maintain a benchmark interest rate, right? So every day, oh. the New York Fed trading, you see? So yeah, people, a lot of people don't know this because it's a little bit sort of technical or recondite. It's not sort of part of ordinary yeah. sort of workaday knowledge. So, But it, it's mm-hmm. actually a fairly simple thing. The New York Fed trading desk every day 
buys or sells U.S. Treasury securities. It transacts in these securities with dealer banks in order to affect the money supply and thereby to affect the interest rate, right? So it basically, mm-hmm. if it wants to increase the money supply and drive down the interest rate, it will buy treasury securities from dealer banks, and those banks now have money instead of treasuries. If, on the other hand, the Fed wants to contract the money supply, it will basically sell treasury securities and basically so it's taking money out of the economy in return for those treasuries. And they call these open market operations because it's and basically the interest the rates then go up because Precisely. the value of so money call- has increased. Precisely. So they call these open market operations because the Fed trading desk is just acting like any other market actor. It's buying and selling stuff in order to affect a price. But because Mm -hmm. it's a very big buyer or big seller, it can move the market price with its transaction activity. Now, think about um, open labor market operations, uh, as I call them. Think about the job guarantee, in other words. We can set a benchmark wage rate or salary rate in the same way that we set benchmark interest rates simply by employing, by taking up slack, right? So if we're worried that uh, uh, prevailing wage rates are too low, we just say, you know what? We will offer jobs at a higher rate. And then every private employer is forced to wage, raise wages in order to meet that benchmark rate. In so we're course, basically engaging yeah. in, yeah. So by hiring, we're engaging in uh, open labor market operations that are entirely analogous to the regular open market operations that the New York Fed Trading Desk engages in every day when it buys and sells treasury securities to affect the benchmark interest rate. So that's another part of the Green New Deal. Right? Wow. So, um, the Republicans right? are going to uh, love that part. Yeah, yeah, you, you bet they are. Oh, there's, there's an irony <laughs> here, too. But it's very interesting, though. Yeah, please yeah, go ahead. There's, well, there's a, well, there's an irony here because, you know, it was actually a Republican president who actually countenanced and came very close to adopting what would have what would have been called at the time, I think it was called, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember now, negative taxes. Oh, God, what was it? I forgot the, the I forgot the term they used at the time. Mm-hmm. But in any event, um, right, Richard Nixon was planning on proposing to Congress a negative income tax for people who basically didn't make enough to pay and who needed more money than they were able to earn. So basically, you were going to really? say, okay. Oh yeah, yeah. This is and, and here's it's even even wilder um, because guess who recommended it to Nixon? It was Milton Friedman. <laughs> so, oh, Milton. Yeah. So, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that is so, really it, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So Milton Friedman Very said there ought to be something we'll call it a negative income tax, meaning that the federal government will pay uh, those who earn below a certain amount. It will pay out money to them. And, of course, it taxes money in, positive taxation from those who are earning plenty. And the idea would be that even people who are sort of, you know, way down at the bottom of the income ladder, um, would there would be a certain minimum that they would receive. If they couldn't earn the full amount of that minimum, they would receive the rest from the government. So the idea – now, that's, that's actually rather more radical, I think, than a job guarantee because, um, you know, there wasn't well, even going yes, to be a work requirement, right, for the labor tax, right? At least here in this case, uh, even though I think it's going to get uh, beaten up, but that's another part of our conversation down the road here about what will happen actually in the body politic, but – here we are yep. having the pleasure of some 
theoretical economic conversation, at least then there is a positive credit to the overall economy through the workforce, through labor. Right, right. And there's also, you know, when you think about it, I mean, there's, you can, you know, by, by simply doing the negative income tax thing, you could not, you wouldn't really be able to influence prevailing wage rates or salary rates economy wide, yes. unless of course, you know, you made it a really high negative income. I mean, in other words, if we guaranteed you Mitch, let's say $50,000 a year, irrespective of what you did, well then yes. of course we would effectively force all firms to pay at least $50,000 a year to everybody right. else. People would just quit. That's right. But, um, That's you know, right. and, and in that sense you could influence, but it, it wouldn't really be a realistic way, I don't think, of influencing no. those benchmark rates because basically the only way politically you would ever have gotten a negative income taxing pass would have been if it was just a very, very basic minimum, right? Just, just yep. barely enough to kind of scrape by. I, I really can Whereas, attest to that, Bob, because I, yeah. I remember once I was teaching in Sweden and a number of uh-huh. the people who came to me for consultations were people who were, as we say, on the dole from the Swedish government. They were making enough yeah. to pay all of, all of their basics. And honestly, uh-huh. they were depressed. They were unmotivated, they were unhappy that they were unmotivated, and they didn't have enough motivation to work for a wage that would be higher because all their basic needs were actually satisfied. So all I'm saying is I'm not drawing a conclusion from that. I'm just saying there's a double-edged sword here between, let's just say, personal motivation and a, a positive psychological outlook toward one's life and being given the basics by an entity such as the government. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's you know, exactly there's right. that, it's, it's a, it's, that fence that we straddle when having those kinds yeah. of conversations. But things are so bad with 18 million hungry children every single night in our rich country, it makes you want uh-huh. to simply cry. And the inequity that is so prevailing needs to be addressed. And, well, this may be one way to provide employment. I I would really have Mm -hmm. to think through if I think it's the best way. I I haven't settled on that just yet, even though I'm in favor of government serving people instead of us serving the government, which looks like it's been the case for way too long. And this is Uh sort of a neutralization of that. But please pick up on where you're going with this. Yeah, well, so, so you know, I mean, I was going to agree with you. I think most of those who favor the job guarantee, um, uh, say, as distinguished from UBI, right, universal basic income, which would be a kind of a, that's in a way you can think of that as the latter-day rendition of the old Richard Nixon, Milton Friedman negative income tax idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Those of us, you know, people who favor the JG, I think uh, oftentimes will say that they favorite because it does sort of recognize the dignity uh, of work and the kind of sense of purpose that uh, having a job gives. Um, But the other thing is I think there's just a recognition that – and I think there's a recognition that as a political matter, um, there's no way that the polity would ever agree to a UBI or negative income tax that was substantial, right? It would be kind of low. It would be sort of table scraps. And so given that fact, then you couldn't really – 
Yeah. Right. So given that fact, you couldn't use it uh, to sort of put a floor underneath wages and salaries economy wide, at least on a floor that we would you know, sort of be pleased with. Whereas um, if you do a job guarantee instead, then if you're guaranteeing people a pretty high wage or a pretty hard, sal- hard salary, it be saleable because people are working yes. for it too. Right? That's right. So it's that's, not, a, that's yes. I think, a part of the – yeah, yeah. Right, so I think right. that's a part of you the – You know, you're reminding you know? me – uh, this is a little bit of a diversion on a, a bit of a diversion, but uh, I don't know if you knew the book uh, "Looking Backward" by Edward Bellamy. It was a Edward Bellamy, that, yeah, uh, very well. I don't yes, know. that my mother had me read when I was a mere lad, and, uh, but it made a really uh-huh. interesting impression on me, as it did on many. You know, its utopian uh, story, um, but you know, everyone finances were not a subject of great importance because everybody was sort of settled financially and they could put their time and energy toward other let's just say uh, higher considerations you know Uh, it was just a different way of seeing the whole story but we everyone has their fingers in the pie in this country and is not willing (laughs) to divide it up but just lick their own fingers and not share. So we have this very backward, um, as you, you know, you referred to barbaric times. Things really haven't changed that much in this Republican Senate, I've noticed. Um, and it's uh-huh. not just them. That wouldn't be fair. It goes stretches way back further than that. It's a. Um, mm-hmm. That's why I'm so glad I studied psychology and some biology <laughs> because I feel like I really understand <laughs> politics better through those and economics, you know. But uh, uh-huh. coming uh-huh. fully around. Um, you know, so you're you're laying out essentially an economic backbone that would be remedying the uh, the errors of the past. But I want to bring up before we move into some of the details of the Green New Deal, I on the level of economics alone, and please correct me if my understanding isn't correct. But it seems to me that the U.S. economy always was moving from one bubble to another that we have a bubble economy, and that's probably the most accurate way of understanding it. Now, there was a period <clears throat> of the, the building of, you know, the in, through the Industrial Revolution where we really made things, and there was an undergirding, if you will, of an actual economic strength and power, and, of course, as we agreed, was getting diminished and remained diminished since the 1970s, but from, say, the turn into the 20th century forward, there was a good period of some 70 years of a fairly steady growth, yet containing a subset of that, a huge subset, Mm -hmm. was still a bubble economy, such as the 1929, you know, depression and and, uh, the stock market crash. And there's always this speculation bubble crash. Speculation, uh-huh. bubble, uh-huh. crash. And you're an mm-hmm. economist, I'm not. Is there any validity to that point of view? Yeah, I mean, so, so there, uh, there are kind of two things that I think are worth noting, maybe. Two, two kinds of process or two underlying causes 
that are maybe worth distinguishing when we talk about, you know, crashes that have happened in the past or sort of financial manias and then crashes and then depressions, right? So on the one hand, there is a tendency, there seems to be a tendency at least um, sometimes, and then yeah. to sort of drive up the prices <laughs> of those investments, right, by speculating on mm-hmm. them. And then if they end up borrowing in order to buy, oh. in order in turn then to speculate, then you can get a real serious problem after the crash finally occurs because people are left yes. in debt, right? I mean, if you yeah. borrow in order to buy an asset and you're doing this because the asset is growing in value over time, what you're effectively doing is what the financiers used to call legging the spread between the low cost of borrowing and the high uh, capital appreciation rate that'll, that occurs during the course of the bubble itself, right? So yeah. in other words, if you borrow at a 3% interest rate, but the thing you buy with your borrowings is rising at a 10% rate, then you've basically got a 7% spread there to capitalize on. And yeah. um, there's a tendency for people you know, to kind of pursue those sorts of opportunities, especially when credit is cheap and available. And then, of course, what happens is after that bubble bursts, the price of the asset suddenly plummets, but the debt does not, right? Because a debt is a fixed <laughs> obligation. Yeah. So people right. end up owing, literally kind of owing more than they own, right? The debt comes to exceed sure. the equity value of the asset. Um, now so that happens periodically. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that happens periodically and, and can happen even in, in an economy where you don't have, you know, kind of crazy degrees of inequality between the wealthy and the non-wealthy, people could just, mm-hmm. you know, you could have a kind of a mass psychosis or a mass mania about something. And some of the um, financial bubbles of the past appear to have been of that character in the sense that they weren't necessarily really dramatic degrees of inequality. But on the other hand, and here's where we pivot, the by far the most devastating financial bubbles and busts have been associated with massive degrees of inequality that preceded them. And that was the case in 1929. And it was the case in 2008. And indeed, I've even got, I've done a fair bit of empirical work on precisely that correlation. I've got a paper out that I put out quite a while ago now, I guess about six, seven years ago, uh, called, uh, uh, I think it's called Income Inequality and Market Fragility. Uh, and it's available on my SSRN. Yeah, it's on my SSRN page if anybody wants to read it. But it, it demonstrates, mm-hmm. you know, quite graphically, even kind of literally graphically, because there are a lot of graphs in there, that you know uh-huh. the inequal the degree of inequality in the American economy, or another way to put this is to say, the degree to which wealth in the American economy had skewed to the top of the distribution by 1928 was massive and was never repeated again until dot, 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 you guessed it, comma, right. 2000, 2008. Yep. So basically 80 years later, we, we got to the yes. same degree of inequality, and lo and behold, 80 years later, we had the same kind of market crash with a long-term Isn't recession, depression that followed. Right. Yeah. And it, it gets right back to what we were talking about. any coincidence that those correlations are there. It's not. It's definitely not, and the paper explains all. exactly why. Yeah, the paper let's sketches the mechanism. Into, let's pivot into the Green Deal. First of all, I want to just uh, let everybody know you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are on every week on radio, podcasting, as well as on community television here in Manhattan every Monday evening at 7 p.m. And if you do not yet receive our newsletter, please go to abetterworld.tv. That's 
abetterworld.tv and sign up for our newsletter, which announces our weekly shows, guests if we have them, and also my blog talking about one thing or another, like the economy, like ecology, like, oh, just a few important, vital, essential things to our lives. So please avail yourselves of that. Today we are speaking with Robert Hockett, the chief advisor, one of the chief advisors of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, representative in the House of Representatives, who has had the wonderful courage and brainstorm to bring forward the Green New Deal and propose it in a resolution to all of Congress. It's being considered right now. The Green New Deal, interestingly, comes from back in 2007, originally proposed by, who was it originally proposed by? Thomas Friedman, correct? That was the origin. Then it was picked up by the Green Party, and Dr. Jill Stein has been speaking about it for at least the last Mm -hmm. 10 years or so, and it's Uh been reformulated uh, a few times, and now it's in the hands of, well, you and your team. So uh, any corrections? Yeah, so – well, just a little bit. I mean, so first, I mean, I'm just a member of a team myself. I, I, I probably I wouldn't want to call myself a chief advisor, but I'm, um, you know, part of the core group. That's well, I said one on of this, the chief advisors, but yes. Oh yeah, right. So yeah, fair enough. Uh, so then the 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 next thing uh, that's worth saying is yeah, I think you have it right. I think that Thomas Friedman. I I don't know if I I would. I'm a little loath to say that he proposed the Green New Deal, but I am perfectly comfortable saying he coined the term. And then he did. Yes. He does seem to have, and, and he seems to have had in mind some kind of serious public investment in, uh, in 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 forms that involves green technologies. And so we can give him that. I'd also want to add that Van Jones played a very important part in the yes. sort of early thinking the about the idea economy. of economy. Yes, precisely. I give yeah, such you got credit it. to you got Van it. Jones. I agree. Thank you. Yeah, for he was a real him. hero. He was in my final statements. So. Yeah. Oh, terrific. Yeah. No, he's a real national yeah. hero. And I think at some point he should, we, we really have to work to make sure he gets his due. And, you know, going back to mistakes of the Obama administration, remember we talked about how I well the, the form that the health legislation took wasn't optimal to say the least. And the stimulus wasn't optimal to say the least. But another Correct. thing, and again, I don't want to like rag all over Obama, but, you know, as soon as there were <laughs> bad faith attacks launched by that Glenn Beck idiot, against Van Jones, Obama just like dropped him like a used Kleenex. And, you know, what he really should have said, he just would have said, you know, up yours to uh, Glenn Beck, who's just not a serious person, right? I mean, why would you ever let, you know, let Glenn Beck determine your cabinet for you? that kind of credibility and not stand up for someone as wonderful and a man of such integrity as Van Jones. Yeah. You know, on the side, my own... A partner of mine, interestingly, Bob, on the side, uh, was actually originally asked by Obama to be the green czar, and that's Jerome Ringo. And uh, he Mm -hmm. had known Van Jones for years, and he actually declined the job. He was working on some renewable energy projects, which uh, a couple of years later he invited me to partner with him on, and his other uh, associate, uh, Avery Hung. And He's mm-hmm. the one who recommended that Van Jones full, fulfill that position, and mm-hmm. thankfully, mm-hmm. that's Van cool. Jones that's did. really cool. Isn't that cool? And 
unthankfully, totally cool. um, yeah. Obama did not uh, stand up for Van Jones. But, you know, nothing stops Van. He went on to do and continues to go on to do remarkable mm-hmm. things in the, in the world mm-hmm. of solarization and other green initiatives while being a CNN correspondent and the like. So, <laughs> God bless you. Exactly. I, I'm so I mean, glad you feel that way. I do too. Yeah. No, He's a yeah. hero of mine. I think Obama should have stuck, Obama should have stuck by him, should have, should, have, should have had his back because he really, you know, it was, it was completely unfair, completely bad faith attacks. And again, the guy Truly. was a visionary. He is. He still is a visionary. He's brilliant. Truly. And as you said, he has that integrity. He's a serious person, unlike yes. Glenn Beck. And, <laughs> right. But, um, but I, and Van is a real yeah, leader. So I, I, and if you think back to January of 2009, which is 10 years ago, what kind yeah. of progress we could have made substantively in this time mm-hmm. period had he still been at the helm of green thinking in the White House. Yeah. We don't want to cry over spilled milk Mm -hmm. now, but um, But, because right now we are at another interesting, fascinating juncture of moving forward Uh with the energy by the the new Dems in Congress. And mainly, interestingly, Uh it should be noted, mostly women. And, uh, Uh you know, let's Mm -hmm. again take our hats off to this... uh, um, gender that has been so undervalued, and now yeah. look what they're doing—they're transforming, transforming. Yeah. So please Truly. go on. Now, let's get into some more of the substance of the uh, the Green New Deal's resolution. Yeah, great, great. So, so the uh, the next thing I suppose to note, um, uh, maybe two two additional features, let's say of the Green New Deal idea and the Green New Deal plan as we're now thinking of it and as we are um, sort of rolling it out or sort of developing it or elaborating it. The first is that kind of like its original New Deal namesake, the Green New Deal is meant to be a kind of organic process that unfolds over the course of a decade. That's to say it's not all going to take the form of like one big, you know, monstrous statute Flash. like the Obamacare statute of 3,000 pages yes. or whatever. And, and it's rather it's Very going to be like point. the New Deal itself, which, as you know, comprised a multitude of statutes that were enacted over time in a kind of sequenced fashion. And at each step along the way of the unfolding of the original New Deal, there was a grand public deliberation underway. People were arguing back and forth about what should be included in this new Securities Act and then in this new Securities Exchange Act and in the National Recovery Act and in the Tennessee Valley Authority Act. And in all of these enactments, there was a great deal of deliberation, but the idea being that everybody's voice has to be heard. We want this to be democratic. So that is one point that really bears emphasis here. And I think it's unique to the Green New Deal um, and, and I don't think it was as emphasized by you know, sort of predecessors in the, in the previous decade or so. The second thing worth noting about it uh, is that also like its New Deal namesake, but also now like it's uh, the, the Second World War mobilization, we have in mind here a massive national mobilization, a truly concerted effort that 
somebody like the philosopher William James would have called the moral equivalent of war. So it's not itself mm-hmm. war unless it's like war against climate change, but it's what James would have called the moral equivalent of war. And the idea here is you have to have a mass mobilization where the federal government is encouraging, it's providing incentives, uh, it's, it's providing outright grants in some cases, it's providing loans in some cases, it's providing loan guarantees in some cases, and entering into joint ventures and yet other cases to make sure that enough is spent to make this happen. We have to think of it as a single coherent national project even if it is a project that unfolds over a decade. Um, Those are two things I think that really make it different. Um, A third thing I think that kind of dovetails with that second thing I just noted, this sort of the mobilization idea, um, is that unlike previous environmental policy initiatives that have either been advocated or indeed even taken, this is not so much about prohibiting stuff or, you know, regulating stuff or it's not about a bunch of thou shalt nots. It's instead, it's a new strategy when it comes to fixing the environment, and that is a massive mobilization to broaden the menu of options that people have when it comes to the forms of energy that they use. Our theory is that if you make solar, if you make water, if you make wind cost-effective, people will simply voluntarily move to them from fossil fuels because they will be more efficient and less costly. But then the old, right, but then the only way to make them cost effective and widely available like that is through a very large scale mobilization effort. So you see the mobilization idea dovetails with the optionality idea, which then dovetails with the sense that this is a different kind of environmentalism. This is about expanding menu options not saying a bunch of thou shalt not, which is another reason it's very tragic that these ridiculous right-wingers, basically Republicans, are mischaracterizing the Green New Deal as we find it. They're saying it's about prohibiting automobiles or prohibiting airplanes or prohibiting cows, blah, blah, blah. That, of course, is completely ridiculous. Or someone said, I heard someone say, uh, yeah, I'm going to take light rail from New York to L.A. You want to ride with me? Yeah, yeah, instead of airplanes. So, I mean, and and prohibiting airplanes. I mean, these are just idiotic suggestions, right? And they're bad faith, dishonest suggestions. Right, as individual suggestions, right? They're ridiculous. But the other thing is every single one of them is completely contrary to the spirit of this thing because the spirit of this thing is not about a bunch of thou shalt not. It's about a, this is, you know, making options available that are better. It's this generally is generally affirmative yeah. language, and it's to some extent preventative language, which is the way healthcare yeah. and the environment should have always been, always. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's yeah. Good, it's and another way to put it is we might say, we might say that instead of thou shalt not, this is all about here you go. All right, here you go. Um, like, here's some stuff. Of it. Here's some stuff for you. Here's some new options for you. So yes. that's the thing that's really different here. And so, you know, we're really, really excited about it from that point of view as well, because we think it's it's not your grandmother's or your mother's or father's environmentalism. Not that there was anything wrong with those as such. It's a different style because it's much bigger. 
and at the same time, much more about optionality and here you goes than about, you know, prohibitions and thou shalt nots, right? Sure. Well, my impression, I'm kind of going to share a few things with you. One thing I mm-hmm. noticed is, and number one, I, I appreciate all of those points. I see it as very mm-hmm. skeletal. It's very bare bones. Um, but what mm-hmm. that also does is it means that we're the ones who have to put um, meat on the bone, so to speak. And that's why, I mean, mm-hmm. I and a number of my colleagues from Ethical Markets, Hazel Henderson, who's uh, uh, been speaking about the solarization of the economy going back to mm-hmm. the early 1960s. And she's one of the leaders oh, yeah. in the space. Uh, I mentioned Jerome Ringo mm-hmm. before, and he and uh, I and several others, uh, Avery Hong and others, have a company called Zoetic Global, who has uh, basically a technology hub of amazing renewable technologies. There are others with whom I deal with through a better world, my organization, that have massive world-changing breakthrough technologies, Bob, that would bring the cost of electricity to a penny and under per kilowatt hour. There are Mm -hmm. real Mm -hmm. substantive solutions that I have Mm -hmm. been dealing with for a long time. There's Paul Mm -hmm. Hawkins and his entire group and the, the book Drawdown, which outlines 80 to 100 solutions that have been hammered out over the course of years by a couple of hundred climate scientists. These are very real, concrete solutions and answers, and in many ways technologies and actions that are almost Mm -hmm. a prescription for Mm -hmm. literally reversing, not just mitigating, Mm -hmm. but reversing global warming if we start yesterday i'm kidding you right. uh, but yeah, no, I, we I, truly yeah. have to enact this and i want to say this also i noticed that there's nothing in the green new deal about carbon sequestration and that's an enormous right. there are two things that we can do one is sequestration of the existing you know carbon excess and methane excess and my god i think there's some 90 other uh, greenhouse identified uh, greenhouse gases and then we've got the you know actions from here on out lowering and reducing and eliminating carbon footprint mm-hmm. so these are the mm-hmm. two actions in a sense that are here for us to engage uh-huh. very very proactively so i would like to see that also enunciated in the agreement in the resolution yeah so here's something a couple things couple things that yeah so first off the 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 kind of uh broadly stated character of the resolution is part and parcel of this kind of long organic process thing that i mentioned before right so one way to think about it you can think about the the resolution in sort of two ways that basically come to the same thing you could think of it as a request for proposals right an rfp and you and i um, as people who have had experience with business and in business are familiar with this term rfp request for proposals it sort of functions partly as that. It's saying, okay, let's start hearing what you guys think. What should we do yes. about this? Let's start what, reviewing what, what, what options. 
mm-hmm. right? And and then the yeah. second way to think about it, which kind of comes to the same, is it's sort of like the opening gavel in a great big national discussion that's going to that's unfold right. over the course of a decade, right? So well it's it's really meant to get things. It's like let's get this party started, you know, that kind of thing. Yes. Um, in fact, yes. I just just wrote a column. I, I'm a regular columnist in <laughs> Forbes, as, as you might know. And the, uh-huh. I put up my, my latest column uh, came out yesterday, and it's called Who Will Make the Green Deal? I mean, the Green New Deal. Uh, and then the answer is yes. literally all of us. And, that's you know, right. I thought about, you know, saying who will make the Green New Deal? You will, you know, but that's the idea. Yeah, we right. really want right. everybody involved. I like that. And, right, yeah. And we want everybody involved. And that's partly politically savvy. Like the more people are involved, the more they have a stake and that's the more they support it. But we also just think it's it's justice, right? That's just the right thing to do. We're a democracy. So the Green New Deal is meant to be a profoundly democratic project just like the New Deal itself was. And it'll be experimental, right? It'll be, I mean, another business term that you and I could use here would be POC, right? Proof of concept. So, Mm -hmm. you know, a really cool cool thing about the original New Deal also was its experimental character. So what they would do is they would try something. And if the thing that they tried didn't work, they would drop it and move on to something else. If, on the other hand, it did work, then they would scale it up. They'd say, this method or this strategy seems to work. Let's scale that baby up. And so the New Deal was a kind of preceded by trial and error so that by the time you got into, you know, about seven or eight years into it, it was actually functioning quite smoothly because they had kind of worked out the kinks and figured out what works and what kind of thing works and what doesn't work and what kind of thing doesn't work. And we envisage the Green New Deal the same way. We view it as being just like the New Deal in that kind of grand experiment sort of sense in the size and scale of it and in the sort of comprehensiveness of it when it comes to inclusion of the entirety of our population, both as people who are going to be putting into it their ideas and as people who are going to be benefiting by it. Oh, one related point here, last point on the original New Deal. The original New Deal had projects in literally every congressional district in the country. Everybody, literally everybody. Now, that again, on the one hand, you could say it's politically savvy because the Congress members are voting in favor Truly. if their districts are benefiting. Board. Yeah. Yeah, but there's also but there's also a kind of a less cynical way of putting that is to say it's democracy. Of course exactly. everybody should benefit because the country right. is it's for really, everybody. It's truly win win, <laughs> which is the only way that's, to do business. Yeah. And that's the only way that's we're going to do. solve this inequity problem, economic inequity disparity which is just horrifying to so many of us. Yeah. And it's just yeah. Well, I want to bring something else up. It's a democracy. Absolutely. I want to bring something else up. Now, I'd like to move the conversation in our last few minutes, Bob, to the subject of, uh, how shall I put it, uh, political strategy. Um, and I'm yeah. bringing this up because sure. this is very real. We're, we're One of the uh, things I do is I'm watching ice. Funny sounding? No, it's not at all. I wish. <laughs> But my tears are adding to the puddle and uh, the pool. <laughs> but in fact, you know, a gentleman like Dar Jamal, who wrote The End of Ice, who I'll be, uh, should be having on the show rather soon, um, and others, James, everybody is weighing in. Uh, Guy McPherson, who I've had on the show, environmental uh, 
professor, uh, University of Amazon, uh, of Amazon, University of Arizona, Professor Emeritus. He's been blowing the whistle. He talks about near-term extinction. You've heard of near-death uh, experience, but uh-huh. this is near-term extinction. And and you know, it sounds funny and playful, but. There's nothing funny or playful about it at all because in his very serious and, mind you, very conservative estimates, we are dealing – we don't have what the IPC says we have, which is, Uh you know, some 12 to 14 years. Well, we know that all the computer modeling is off. It's off. And yeah. our time for action was really, you know, 40 years ago. But we uh, can't do that. So we're doing what we right. can now. So even though I so much appreciate all that you're saying and what Ocasio-Cortez is proposing about this fantastic sweep of dem- democratic idealism across the country, I'm all for it. Strategically, I'm thinking this. It occurred to me since you and I have been talking over this past week, and that is framing this sort of more as an infrastructure package because that's what this funny fellow in the White House says he wants to do. But as you were saying before, all new technologies are essentially energy-efficient green technologies anyway. You can't get away with right. it because one, it's it's all synonymous now, right? It's all like redundant. Right. So, right. rather than getting the uh, rankling our Republican brothers and sisters, we're everywhere you look. Um, there's a way of framing this. This is what I'm thinking, Bob, and I want to hear what you have to say. Essentially, as an infrastructure project, and then bring in some of these extra democratic, all are served, and even economic. The economic boom will happen when people are getting employed, building solar and wind and geothermal and um, hydrokinetic and all green buildings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The economy will become massively growing. And that is a frame I'm suggesting might be an easier sell when it actually comes to a body like the Senate. And bring well, in, yeah. weave in, by definition, these new technologies, which are green. Your yeah, thoughts. so I think, I mean, I think that's a very important point, and it, it, it complements uh, another point that we can make, I think, simultaneously. And it, it's it's this, right? So this guy who is occupying the White House right now promised two things in particular that were very appealing to working class folk who mm-hmm. were the primary sufferers of all of the uh, sort of detrimental changes that have occurred since the 1970s. One was to bring back manufacturing jobs and bring back good paying yes. jobs by reexamining our trade policy, the globalization that we sort of were championing before uh, and the like. And then the other, of course, was serious Mm -hmm. uh, infrastructure investment, right? Now, think about the Green New Deal um, uh, against that backdrop. So first, as you and I have discussed at length already in, in this conversation, the Green New Deal is in significant measure about infrastructure and about manufacturing technologies and the like. And it's about making the ones that we have cutting edge, modernizing them, leapfrogging frogging ahead uh, mm-hmm. of everybody else and being sort of world class again in these realms. 
something that Trump promised that he would do, but that he obviously hasn't done anything about yet. Um, so that's the, uh, on, on the infrastructure and the manufacturing stuff. Right? Um, but then think about the sort of trade rebalancing uh, stuff. So he's, he's sort of done stuff there, but it's again, he's doing it in a kind of stupid way, it seems to me. It, it's, he doesn't seem to have thought it all through. It's not sort of no. systematic. Um, and so he seems to be causing at least as much man. harm as it's very cavemanish, but now think about now. Now consider green technology in this connection. All yeah. of the cutting-edge green technologies that we've been talking about, all of those technologies that would be used to have state-of-the-art manufacturing and state-of-the-art infrastructure and the like, all of that stuff was invented here. Stuff we came up with yeah. that stuff, and we we're, we were at the front edge. We were at the cutting edge of all of that when we were, when it was first being developed, but we didn't yeah. cultivate it. We didn't encourage it. And what happened? Well, now uh, of course our major the and Korea. It, China is the. China is the principal producer and consumer and exporter of this stuff. Germany and yeah. Korea are another couple of very important ones. But China, of course, is by far number one in all of this. And again, these are our technologies. Now, if Trump is serious then about rebalancing our trade relations with others, here too, he should want us to retake green tech. Let's call it green tech for a second. That's right. He should want mm -hmm. us to retake green tech because then, first of all, we wouldn't have to import any of it because we'd be producing it. And second of all, we could be massively exporting it. And finally, if we actually began to act as a polity, as a coherent polity, to sponsor yes. the adoption of it widely, you would have a guaranteed large market for it, which makes it immediately possible to make the stuff cheaply on a per unit basis. So it becomes much more mm -hmm. economical to produce it when there's a guarantee that it's going to be widely used. And then once that happens, once you're a low cost producer of it, man, you can export the hell out of it too. And you can become the global leader uh, in green tech, both in domestic use and in foreign exporting. Indeed. Yeah. Excellent points. I mean, it's sort of like you never want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, even though we may have one opinion or another of this fellow who is occupying the White House. There are a few ideas that you and I would really uh, advocate. And that is a balancing yeah. of the trade tariffs, not the way he's doing it, but a balancing because it's been imbalanced. And Obama and everyone behind, before him did nothing. You know, there's the rescission yeah. of the uh, Glass-Steagall Act. We don't have the time to go into all yeah. of this now. But, you know, all of this is just contributing to imbalance after imbalance and, then, uh, and imbalance till finally you have a patient that's very, very sick. And that's, of course, exactly. right now the United States of America, you know. Well, Indeed. I'm, I'm yeah. still proposing the idea. There's so much in a name, Bob. And the Green New Deal is uh, so gorgeous for people like us. But when we um, uh, push it into, you know, the Senate, uh, I'm, a, I'm concerned that it's going to get bandied about and made fun of. And I, I think by reframing this, relanguaging it, if you will, into just an infrastructure deal, and you and I know um, – Hush, hush, you know, blink, you know, nod, nod, and uh, blink, blink, that wink, wink, that any technology they use is going to be um, green by definition, clean tech. Yeah, so and all the stuff we that we've win written. by definition. 
Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, there's going to be an awful lot of bad faith. I'm just banding about some thoughts. That's all right now. Indeed. Indeed. There's going to be a lot of bad faith right wing attacking no matter what we do. That's just what they do now. Right. So I don't think we should do we should. The last thing we should ever consider doing is thinking about how we're going to win them aboard, because that's just not what they do. We know Mitch McConnell said, right, the day after Obama won the presidency, or at least very shortly thereafter, our job is to make sure he's a one term president. They basically do this all the time. So what we do is we just say, you know, you guys, you can just kind of sit there burning stuff in your little swamps and you can live like cave dwellers. (laughs) We're moving forward. You know, we're moving forward. Yes. If you want to catch up with us at some point, we'll always open the door to the caboose and you can jump on the back of the train if you can catch up to us. But we're not waiting (laughs) for you. Okay. And the thing is, we see what's happening. All right. We see what's happening when it comes to, uh, you know, sort of the global, the, uh, the, the national political alignment. Uh, the, the, the sort of the energized New Deal style Democrats are retaking uh, the momentum in the Democratic Party. The Republican Party, thanks to its crazy right wing extremism, is falling apart. So I would predict that within the next five, six years uh, or so, you're going to see the Democratic Party is going to look a lot like Roosevelt's party. And the Republican yes. Party is probably going to look like the kind of a moderate Nixon party or something of that sort. Mm-hmm. So the balance mm-hmm. is shifting back the in the same direction. The pendulum is going to swing the other way. Yeah. And dramatically yeah. so. So we should just yeah. we should assume that that's going to be the story we should make, and we should just push forward with maximum ambition, and not sort of say, oh well, we'll sort of downplay it a bit, or we'll we'll small scale it or no, slow no, walk no. it in order to, to oh, get a few no. reactionaries on No, 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 no. I, I want to speed no, walk it. That's why I'm saying this. I agree. Actually. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm we, we, as I say, I'm watching the ice melt under our feet, Bob, and that's where I come from. So my time clock is directly related to the Earth herself's time clock, if you will. You know, not not a congressional time clock. So I'm like, that's what we got to do. Speeding ahead. Well, listen, this has been a wonderful dialogue conversation. I so appreciate your input and helping to clarify not only the Green New Deal, but the antecedents to it economically and why it has some of the component parts that it does. We didn't really, you talked about the nationalization of banking. We didn't really speak anything about public banking, but would you come back on and we can uh, carry on the dialogue? I'd be delighted and honored, my friend. We can talk about all of those things, too, later on. Wonderful. Then let's do so. Robert Hockett, thank you again for being a guest on the show today, and I'll be in touch with you, and we'll, we will uh, carry this forward in due time, soon time, actually, because of the, uh, the pressing nature of the subject. Thanks again. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Mitch. Take care. Sure. Bye-bye now. Wow, that was a rich and wonderful conversation. I so enjoyed. I learned a lot from Robert Hockett just now about the inner workings of this, and I hope uh, Fox News and others tune in and learn about what it's really about rather than the digressive red herring kind of conversations they have engaged uh, Bob in to date, at least to date. Anyway, this is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. I'm so glad that you tuned in and joined us today. Please let people know about this and forward it to your friends so they can get better educated about this vitally important 
piece of legislation that is beginning to move forward in Congress, even by its current name, and uh, which I like, by the way, don't get me wrong, but I think we need to, uh, you know, uh, undergird its language so that we can be assured success. Visit me and us at www.abetterworld.tv and www.mitchellraven.com, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.